Okay, so today is September 26th, uh, 2015, and we are sitting in the guest house at Fort Douglas uh, University of Utah campus, and I'm with Joni Adamson from Arizona State University. Uh, thank you so much for agreeing to talk to us. Thanks for having me. Sure. Well, we're uh, again, we owe uh, a thanks to the Environmental Humanities Program, uh, graduate program at the University of Utah, and our friend Jeff McCarthy, who, of course, actually under whose auspices you're here and we're sort of glomming on to you um, in an opportunistic fashion because we we work with those folks and we love those folks so it's uh, it's great to uh, have the chance to talk with you that's called ecology exactly exactly <laughs> um, so I, I wanted to ask you in a very general way uh, the environmental humanities how how do you define it so I define the environmental humanities as a, an emerging field, a fast emerging field since 2000. Uh, it was a term that was coined in Australia by Val Plumwood and Deborah Bird Rose, um, among other people. Uh, so we traced the, the term to Australia, but it really was, has been emerging for over 30 or 40 years, uh, first um, in a field called American Studies um, with people like Leo Marx and um, um, Annette Kolodny. Uh, sometimes it gets um, traced to the emergence of eco-criticism and environmental history. Um, I like to remind people that environmental history has a much longer uh, set of roots than just the 1990s. So, so some people say it's a field that emerged in the 1990s, but I like to trace its really long, long roots back through William Cronin and back to, you know, people um, that have a much longer history on the American continents, such as Alexander von Humboldt, who came here in the late 1700s and then came to America and was an influence on uh, all of what we call our amount, uh, um, uh, founding fathers. Uh, but, but then later, uh, Henry David Thoreau was a, a d complete disciple, and then you can trace that forward. And so I like to say that the environmental humanities, while the term it can be dated to about 2000, is this set of hum humanistic disciplines, including literary criticism, history, uh, philosophy, uh, but also the arts, and, and today, visual images, uh, digital, digital humanities, um, digital arts, um, um, and media. So it's, it's this, what we're doing is we're, we're, we're networking. We're coming together. We've, we've noted that there's a common problem it is accelerating environmental change, and uh, that we need to not remain in our silos, but come together to work on this problem together. How did you come to start working in environmental humanities? Well, I'm from Idaho, and so I grew up in Pocatello, Idaho, and I spend a lot of time camping with my dad, and uh, then as a you know, young woman thinking about going to graduate school, I was, of course, like all of us, very influenced by Terry Tempest Williams. And I uh, ended up doing my PhD at the University of um, Arizona, where I was asked to teach courses uh, specifically and exclusively for Native American students. 
and uh, my nine years of working exclusively with Native American students, first as a composition uh, instructor and then as a um, uh, as a we had these Brit summer bridge programs, summer bridge programs for uh, students from the reservations who are going into medical careers. Um, so through my nine years of working on the reservation and on campus exclusively with Native American students, I completely changed the way I thought about everything environmental because I saw that the way that my peers in literary studies were looking at Native American literature was really very romanticized and quite incorrect because it didn't really account as, as much as it needed to account for the long histories of colonization and genocide. And, um, and then more recently, uh, since the 1950s and the emergence of the, our nuclear programs, uranium mining, coal mining, and all of the uh, kinds of mining that tend to get located on Native American nations or reservations uh, because, because these, these are some of the most vulnerable people in the Americas. And I began noticing that um, Native American contemporary literature dating from Scott Mamaday forward um, was all about these toxicities uh, that could be rooted in um, uh, you know c colonial oppression but they came straight straight through you know um, the fact that um, people were displaced from the places where they lived to reservations or out of national parks to create this, the, these places where people were essentially um, prevented from practicing their traditional migration and food security routes. In other words, you know, they had these uh, traditional migration routes where they would um, essentially collect all of their food and uh, they were then prevented from that and, and kept from that and, and fed all of these commodity foods that really degraded their health and um, and so there were all these toxicities, social toxicities, food security toxicities, um, and then you know mining runoff and um, uh, you know health problems, and so you needed to read this literature through all of those toxicities. And people in the 80s and 90s were not doing that. And so in the in the early well in 2001 and 2002, I published two books that were on environmental justice, and so. I was one of the first literary critics to write about um, environmental justice in Native American literature. And um, so sometimes when people talk about the environmental humanities, they say there is a first, uh, first wave that's focused on place, and then a second wave that um, is focused on environmental justice. Um, my work tends to get um, associated with the second wave, um, and, and my, my books tend to get associated with that transition. Um, but I like to, again, remind people that the environmental humanities and the environmental justice movement did not start in the 80s or 90s. You have to trace it all the way back to the indigenous, first indigenous uprisings and the first you know, slave re revolts because, um, all, because those resistance movements were all about the fact that people were not mystified by the connections between resource exploitation and um, human exploitation. So they clearly understood the connections between you know, uh, colonial uh, exploitation of resources and appropriation of resources and lands. 
and uh, what was happening to their health and their social cohesion. And so, so those first uprisings and those first revolts have to be part of the history of the environmental justice movement. So um, even though it's e it, you know, to teach, to teach we have to talk about things like waves and paradigms, uh, but as historians, whether we're literary critics or historians, we, we like to trace back those longer roots. And in fact, those longer roots are exactly the contribution of the environmental humanities to sustainability sciences. So sustainability sciences, since the Brundtland Report in 1987, have tended to uh, uh, focus really about the present and the future and technology and um, resource uh, appropriation without really connecting it to these longer histories and these longer sort of social connections. So that's what environmental humanities is trying to do, is, is contributing uh, that missing piece of what we're calling sustainable development or resilience or adaption or, or survival, whatever you, whatever you call it. Mm -hmm. so, so that's cool to think about, that, uh, this idea that you're framing these early resistance movements as, as kind of roots. So something like the Pueblo Revolt, how, yes. would, you, how would you talk about that? Actually, I talk about that in my first book. Nice. So my first book is called American Indian Literature, Environmental Justice, and Eco-Criticism. And I uh, use the Pueblo Revolt of 1680 as, the, as an example of an environmental justice uh, uprising that sh or should be considered with that term of environmental justice. Again, the Pueblo people coordinated that revolt. It was coordinated throughout all of the Pueblos. It was coordinated not just with uh, Pueblo people, but with Mexican people and people uh, who agreed that some of the things that were going on in the, in the missions uh, should not be going on. So there were, you know, um, people were being enslaved, forced to march to Mount Taylor. I don't know if you know where Mount Taylor is in, in um, New Mexico, but forced to march to Mount Taylor and drag back the tallest pines to make the missions. And, um, those deep ruts in the earth where people were li literally forced to drag the pines back um, are still, you can still see them from space. They, they, they marked the face of the earth. And uh, so this had been going on for years. And so in 1680, there was a coordinated revolt. And um, the Pueblo people managed to keep the Hispanic Mexican you know, conquistadors out of the Pueblos for s seven years. Um, so yes, that's one of the that 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 is one of the examples of what I call other forms of environmentalism. So um, m our mainstream conservation and preservation movements, uh, which we tend to date kind of to the 1960s, you know, they're all important and they all have also long historical roots, because if you trace them back to Henry David Thoreau, then you've got to trace them all the way back to Alexander von Humboldt. And so they also have very long roots, but what tends to get left out are these um, social injustices that involved um, people other than, uh, you know, so-called Americans. Right, so the people on the reservations, people who somehow fa fell outside the definition of American, and so um, yeah, what I'm trying to do is is n note that there are all kinds of in environmentalisms. They take many forms. They are based on all kinds of long 
complex scientific literacies that may be embodied in an anthropomorphic tale about a coyote or may be embodied in an anthropomorphic tale about a mud, mud head, <laughs> a mud god. Uh, but they have these amazingly accurate scientific literacies. And if you know how to read them, which obviously um, lots of uh, Native elders uh, still read, read these stories in the way that they were meant to be read, if you know how to read them, then they're not just uh, easily dismissed you know, stories. They're, in fact, these really complex sort of maps of what I call multi-species relationships. So um, in, in our more modern conservation movements, we, we tend to put the big human we as a kind of anthropos aggregate, you know, as if all humans are the same. But if you look at these other scientific literacies, the, the, you would have to call it a multi-species aggregate because the we includes other than humans. And so it, it, the, the we in these stories, these anthropomorphic stories, is, is, is a much larger and much more entangled and networked we. It includes the bacteria in our gut that, that allows us to uh, digest our food, but it also includes each of the species that um, our ecological health actually depends on. So whether it's a tree that's cleaning our air, or whether it's a, some kind of algae that's cleaning our water, you know, some kind of plant that's doing um, some important work for the, the air, water, and food that we absolutely need to survive. It's a, it's a kind of multi-species aggregate instead of just the human um, sort of homogenous aggregate. So how do you write eco-criticism histories of that multi-species aggregate? So my own particular uh, work does look at um, indigenous um, stories from around the world. So I uh, most recently have been writing about some of the um, Amazonian anthropomorphic tales. So in, Am in the Amazon, uh, we talk about Yakamama, which is, tends to be called Mother Earth, or Sachamama, which is, you know, Am the Amazon River, or, or Yakamama, you know. So there's the mother of trees, the mother of rivers. So there's mothers. Um, and one of the things that I do in my own work to help people understand uh, the complexity, the scientific uh, complexity of these stories, is first I, I note that Pachamama actually means source of light. So it doesn't actually mean Mother Earth, it means source of light. And if you think about the, the connotations of source of light, sunlight. Everything that happens on this planet is dependent on sunlight. Sunlight is the energy through which plants create um, sugar and energy, and we um, all depend upon uh, light and sun. So Pachamama, source of light, really interesting concept, and, and a concept you know that we don't tend to think about just in our daily lives, even though we, we know the sun's important, but we don't really think about it as a sort of source of all life. And uh, I found that it's really helpful to use um, blockbuster films. So I've been so one of the things that I've been doing recently is using James Cameron's Avatar as the blockbuster film that, that all of my students has, have seen. And because it has this big mother tree, mother of trees, uh, 
I can use that as a, a metaphor to sort of understand, to, to help my students understand the anthropomorphic tales of the Amazon. But what we do is we connect it to the actual um, biology of trees. So we, we actually look at the way in which trees uh, do two things. They turn sunlight into sugar. They take the sugar down the, the, the trunk of the tree, but then they spread it out through this amazing rhizomatic network of roots and fungal networks so that a giant tree, a mother tree, will actually be feeding not only uh, her, her own species of seeds on the forest floor, uh, which really don't have a chance to grow because they don't um, get the sunlight. So she is spreading out her energy to the seeds. But what, what biologists are telling us now is that, in fact, these um, giant trees, they feed, they feed a, lot of, a lot of woody species growing on the forest floor. So these fungal networks spread out, and they, 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 they shunt all, all of this, or I should say they you know, allow all of this energy from the sun to flow throughout the dark forest floor. And that's, that's how a lot of the uh, species on the forest floor survive. So once we start talking about the ways in which James Cameron absolutely knew what he was doing, he hired a biologist to create all the sets. He, um, he, he, he wanted bioluminescence, which is, you know, his, one of his mediums because he spent so much time under the ocean with the Titanic and, uh, you know, filming all of the things he films. Uh, he, he used bioluminescence, which is a, a process that really happens mostly in the ocean, to illuminate these rhizomatic processes of mother trees to um, literally show you in the film, if you know what you're looking at, um, the biology of a tree, but also, interestingly, the root systems of, on the forest floor look amazingly like the neural nets in our brains. And so, you know, so once you once you you can kind of connect some of these kinds of things, you can begin to see that these um, anthropomorphic stories, which which seem fantastic, or fantastical, you know, like a tree can't really be a mother, but then you when you start understanding the metaphors uh, in which this scientific literacy is embedded, you start to be able to quote unquote read the story in the way that the stories you know were meant to be read. So that's kind of uh, how I, I write about these things, but I also teach about these things. And my goal is to um, acquaint my students with not just our own understandings of science and biology, which are very important and which, in fact, help us read um, indigenous uh, scientific literacies, but to help them understand that there are all kinds of ways of reading the, the earth and that the more um, information we have and the more understanding we have of different ways of reading uh, our relationships with other humans and with other uh, non-humans, uh, then the better equipped we're going to be to meet the challenges that we currently need to meet and currently need to meet kind of quickly. <laughs> so, so <how laughs> say in the next... Um, Say, say, say yesterday, but also say in the next 10 years. Yeah. So how do students react to this? Well, when you can teach them through uh, blockbuster films, which I do. I, I mean, I use all kinds of blockbuster films, from, from um, Avatar to The Matrix uh, to older films like uh, Soylent Green. Uh, which Silent Green was made in 1973. It's this old Charlton Heston 
movie uh, about a time of climate change set in the near future, which is 2023, which to us is just right around the corner. Uh, but, but actually, the things they sort of depict in this 1973 film, uh, we're, we're seeing. Uh, we're seeing a, a planet that uh, has a lot more people uh, on, on it than, it than we had in 1973. And we're seeing conflicts over water and food and resources. And so it's a really campy sort of, you know, film, science fiction-y kind of film. But it, but it's it's really interesting to juxtapose that film with uh, with Avatar or or you know, I use The Matrix sometimes because of its um, depictions of these neural nets, which can either look like the, the the internet, our brains, or these rhizomatic systems that are um, at work on a forest floor. Um, and students really, students really uh, like that. They they like learning that the filmmakers were doing, are often doing much more than just making a, a good story. They want to make a good story, and it is a good story. And often there are superheroes and you know um, lots of pyrotechnics and special effects. But um, but but when they start to understand that there's a, there are also these sort of layers and deeper meanings uh, in the films, uh, they really like it. So, so how, how would you set up when you, want, when you show Avatar? Um, how do you prep students for watching it, what would you say? Um, there's, there's so much great information out there now uh, in which um, biologists and photographers are using this high-speed uh, photography. So I don't know if you know the, the work of Louis Schwartzberg. He's this um, he's this amazing photographer who who does this microscopic but high speed filmmaking in which he'll show you a flower opening or a whole field of grass growing in you know thirty seconds. So he speeds up the film and at microscopic levels so that you can see things that you wouldn't normally be be able to see. So part of, part of the point of this photography is that as, as humans, there are things we can't see. So our eyes are literally evolved over time to see things that our dogs don't see. So our dogs co-evolved with us, and uh, they see things through their nose. So they smell things in and that's how they see. We see things. So we stood up. I, I'm speeding up evolution here. We stood up, and we could see farther than our dogs. So our dogs see through their noses, but we evolved together. And, and, and we evolved with our eyes and our noses doing different work. But together, you know, we were able to work, work as teams. But because of the way our eyes work, and the, because of the ways our noses don't work, um, there are things that we can see and things that we can't see. And so this high-speed photographer fee can, it is literally a tool that can help us see things that we couldn't normally see. So you can literally see um, what a tree is doing, or you can literally, so to prepare my students to watch Avatar, I will show them some of these amazing high-speed photography that are in some programs uh, like Discover uh, the Discovery Channel. Uh, there's one program called What Plants Talk About. And it is this most amazing film where they use this high-speed uh, photography to literally show you how, how um, plants will, will explode out these volatile uh, chemicals that are full of scent and will attract the right predators or 
or repel repetitor, uh, predators. And so they're doing all the, they're quote unquote, doing all these things we can't see. So I show them some of the biology uh, through using some high speed photography, which is an art. I show them literally how the arts and humanities are contributing to, to the, you know, in collaboration with the sciences to show us some things that we can't see, which maybe our dogs see. Uh, maybe our dogs could actually see some of these things, but um, we can't see them. And so James Cameron, in another genre, in the blockbuster film, is also trying to sort of do two things at once, tell this blockbuster-type story to get you into the theater, um, but also uh, acquaint you with some ecological um, knowledges that typically the modern uh, everyday human just doesn't have. And so, so he... Um, I wouldn't call James Cameron uh, an, an environmentalist or an ecologist necessarily, but he is concerned about the environment, and uh, he does he does want people to think about these issues. And so, um, I also want my students to think about these issues. And again, I'm thinking about the speed at which we need to sort of recalibrate um, what we're how we're living in our society. So I think blockbuster films are just one film, or the high-speed photography, uh, another uh, art or an, and humanity that can contribute to our scientific knowledge about why we need to recalibrate our behaviors, our just our outlooks, um, and how how we how we move and um, interact on a planet that isn't just humans, isn't just for humans. So, so I, I'm interested in how clearly your work and, uh, and your teaching is not just, it's not just descriptive, it's not just this is how things were and are. You're also seeing it as uh, a contributory to, to problem solving, to saying, hey, we have, yes. a, we have a climate crisis and the environmental humanities has a role to play in this. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. I like to think that I am teaching my students to be citizen humanists. Uh, because we've all heard, maybe we've all heard the term citizen scientist, where uh, the, the notion is that scientists will teach everyday ordinary citizens to understand the science uh, of different processes that are going on around them. Um, and there's all kinds of interesting, just short articles that you can give to your students about citizen science. And so I give my students some of these um, articles to read on citizen science, and then I ask them to go out and become citizen humanists. So maybe one of the things that I'll do for uh, a course on environmental nonfiction is I'll ask them to put together a portfolio on some species overlooked or life overlooked. And I'll, I'll tell them that I don't want them to focus on um, you know, a charismatic animal, but rather I want them to just pick out some completely overlooked uh, species on our campus that they can observe every day on their way to class. Uh, it could be a pigeon, it could be a starling, it could be, um, it could be a tree, it could be uh, a, 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 a grass, uh, a flower. Um, and to, to learn how that, that species has figured in art through time and um, maybe poetry, maybe stories. And it's amazing what my students can find on the internet about things like 
um, lizards and pigeons. It's amazing what you can find. It's amazing how many times these overlooked species that we really don't even think about um, have figured into poetry or art. So essentially what I asked them to do is learn all about the science of the species, but then insert the cultural components into the story of that, and then write a narrative. And uh, we have been recently uploading our stories, our blogs, onto an, a, a digital uh, website and pinning them on maps. And our idea is that we're going to pin pin our map all over our campus, right? And then students will be able to look at the map and see what all of the species that normally they wouldn't notice. And our goal of this is to make urban places as as natural, quote unquote, natural as 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 any sort of national park or outside place, you know, normally associated with the, the notion of nature or wilderness because the idea is that if you don't start noticing that we're surrounded by air which is nature and um, that every everything in the urban um, environment whether it's concrete or tar uh, a tar you know street or a building made out of brick to the pigeon to the grass everything is is an ecology sure. and um, so for example coyotes absolutely depend on our modern urban ecologies now because they get their water, their food, they know, they know how to run the streets. Uh, you probably see coyotes all over Salt Lake City, I'm guessing. Uh, I don't think so, and I don't know why. That's an interesting question. Because in question. Phoenix, Arizona, we, you know, if you get up early enough in the morning to, to run with your dog or whatever, we always see coyotes, and they know, they know how to get through the city. They know every alley, they know every wash, they know every park, and they know every golf course. And, and to them, the city is this highway of little routes, right? All of their routes are through the grassy areas like golf courses or washes or whatever, but they know how to get around and you'll just see them and they don't want to have anything to do with you. And so as soon as they see you, they'll get away from you. But you see them running and you know they've been places and uh, it's fun. It's fun yeah. because, you know, I know a lot of coyote stories, so so that's fun. I I so, think so about that's, those, I those think about it in projects. the Wilthos yeah. Yeah, though that it sounds a little bit like William Cronin's notion of, you know, in the trouble with wilderness, let's not just care about these pristine places and then trash everything else. Let's actually talk about, learn about, protect trees that we plant ourselves and, and the places where we, we live and work all the time. Yes. Well, and I have to give credit to Laurie Riku, who used to teach at the University of British Columbia. Um, this is his idea. He's written about this idea. He's written about um, um, sending his students out to forage uh, information. He, he uses the word forage. Forage information about one species. Um, and he's an English professor, and he's long been an English professor, and, and yet he wanted to bring um, ethnography and uh, science and, uh, you know, into, into the liter literature classroom focused on a species, and, and he's got books that he's written that are focused on one species, and just how much you can learn if you just focus on one species, but then you, as a citizen humanist or whatever you want to call yourself, connect all of the cultural and scientific dots, um, how much it opens up your world. So.
So even, I mean, one of the things that I make my students do in, in every single class is know their watershed and know where their waste goes. Just because knowing those two things open up a completely different way of understanding the place you live. And so, so this Life Overlooked project, foraging project, is part of that. Uh, just know the place. Um, and uh, maybe it's more important for us to understand urban places even more than it is to understand um, places out there, in part because our environmental problems begin in our cities. They don't, they don't begin, you know, in they don't, they don't actually begin in the Arctic. They begin in the city where we need gas and oil, right? And so that's the reason why we want to we wanna drill in the Arctic, because we think we need gas and oil in the city. So our ecological problems begin in a city, and that's why I think it's really important for our students to understand sure. um, the, the overlooked life that's all around them. And that's one of the exciting things, I think, about environmental studies, broadly considered is this sense of just let's stop let's stop concerning ourselves with disciplinary boundaries mm -hmm. um, it makes it it makes it difficult to you have to have a certain level of expertise in a dozen different disciplines mm -hmm. and, and uh, that's that's a tough thing to do but it also allows allows for so, so many broader conversations i think among people. it does do, do you get a sense at arizona state of that sense of interdisciplinarity among your, your faculty colleagues? Well, at Arizona State, our, we have had a president for over 10 years who's made it his business to take down the silos and um, to bring faculty together in centers and institutes that are focused on interdisciplinarity. So um, he, he came in with the vision that um, solving the world's complex problems would would take interdisciplinarity because to understand complexity you have to have a, 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 you know many different outlooks on a problem and so um, so we don't have very many de departments at all we have schools in which uh, schools that bring targeted uh, interdisciplinary faculty together but then even beyond that we have um, centers and institutes that work to network us uh, together on uh, different uh, problems we want to solve. Sure. So yeah, we're we're working really hard at that too. Um, so we have our Global Institute of Sustainability. Um, we have a new school called the School of Future Innovation in Society, and um, this school is really interesting because it's focusing on what has been called the arts of futurity. So uh, you know how you would use uh, scenario planning, arts and humanities, for example together with engineering and technology to solve uh, complex problems in which you think about what is the future you want to see and then you you actually plan how you're going to get there so you know it's a it's a school that's purposely created to think about the creation of livable futures so uh, instead of thinking about apocalypse right we're thinking about well how will how will we create livable futures do you get a sense that the planners and policy people with whom you work, do they listen to humanities people? Do they want to hear from humanities people? I would say that that's still a complicated and maybe even uphill um, journey that we're on. However, um, since the 2012 Rio plus 2012 um, uh, um, conference on sustainability, there has been a, a marked change in 
international uh, scientific research platforms like Future Earth and like the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, there's been a marked change in their, uh, um, I guess you could say their uh, openness to, to humanities and arts. There's a, a, a real sort of moment, I should say awareness, that we're entering this moment of transition where there is recognition that science and big data is not changing human behavior in a um, fast enough uh, way and that we're going to have to come up with new um, understandings of human behaviors and motiva motivations and understandings of how you uh, motivate uh, people towards uh, change at, at an accelerated rate. And they, there's, a, there's an increasing understanding that that, that is the, the province of the humanities. That's what we do. And so uh, one of the things that the humanities does, for example, in environmental history, is we can look back and we can say, why did people make fast changes in certain historical situations? And you know, what can we learn from the changes in those historical situations uh, uh, about changing behavior now? So of course, the classic um, sort of big change that people have looked at is cigarette smoking. Just how quickly it was that we well, quick, quickly being relative, <laughs> you know, if you if you consider 50 years to be quickly, <laughs> you know, quickly we we identified that cigarette smoking was causing causing cancer. To now, where pretty much all of our buildings are uh, smoke free, and we understand that it's uh, that even secondhand smoke is is a danger to um, the whole society. So you know, looking at what we learned from things like that, and um, then applying it to uh, the situation we're in now, which is we we need to quickly uh, communicate why environmental understanding is an important uh, understanding for everyone to have, not just biologists or scientists. Are you optimistic about the next 10, 20 years? Well, I think that we all have uh, a dual role to play if we're educators. If, if you're an educator, I think that you have kind of an obligation to be optimistic because if you go into the classroom and the only thing you can convey to your students is, um, you guys should just give up now, it's all over. That's just, that's antithetical to education, right? We're in the classroom because we believe that there is something we can do. We can educate our students in some ways that will make a difference. Otherwise, why are we there? So I am hopeful, and I do believe that we already have all of the technology that we need to quickly turn around um, and make the changes that we need. We, we do not have the political will. We do not um, have an understanding of how you enter into interdisciplinary and, um, you know, um, in, into alliances that would bring together community members, policymakers with academics and, and experts in, in different fields. We, we actually are not that great at that. However, if you look at the environmental justice co uh, communities over the last uh, 30 to 40 years, essentially what you see is a lot of innovation. So if, you, if, if we're talking about coalitional politics, What's interesting is that the most innovative coalitional politics have taken place at small scale, uh, at the small scale. So at the IPCC has projected this mega problem 
which has called for a mega solution, but it's not happening. But then if you look at the uh, environmental justice movement and you look at the small-scale coalitional politics, um, and I'm talking about not just the United States, but some of the most innovative coalitional politics are taking place at a small scale in South America and Central America. And some, some of the most innovative things that are happening on the world stage are, are actually coming out of Global South uh, contacts. Uh, but, but also here in the United States on environmental justice issues. So when I look at that, I do have cause to be hopeful. Um, at the same time, I do think that we have to give our students a, a realistic sense of caution, um, sort of like mind the gap. <laughs> I'm very optimistic, but mind but the gap. Mind the gap. <laughs> well, that's kind of wonderful, and I think that that, that may be a good place to, to stop. And I want to thank you so much, oh, Joni, thank for, you so uh, much. For, for talking to us at, at, at some length here uh, when you should have been resting from your from your long <laughs> symposium. Uh, but, no, but it was a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And I appreciate it. And uh, mm -hmm. hey, this is Jeff Nichols for EC Square.